Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Well, friends, this morning as we celebrate the Feast of St. Joseph, I, uh, I was thinking, I was like, man, it's such a... I got Cyril Methodius this year. Father Joe gave me Cyril Methodius, and now I get St. Joseph. I don't know what's going on there. He's giving me these big feast days. So um, oftentimes when it comes to some of these bigger feasts or solemnities or saints feast days, one of the very first things that I, I will often do for, you know, contemplation, homily prep, I'll often uh, just kind of scroll through images of sacred art that depict the saint or the scene or the, uh, the feast day. And um, so I did that. I googled St. Joseph the Worker and uh, I was looking at different images of uh, St. Joseph the Worker. And I'm going to just say this, that Christian art, the history of Christian art has bequeathed to us a very odd, and I'm going to just say disappointing image of St. Joseph the Worker. Because if you Google search St. Joseph the Worker, you're going to find all of these images of old, old men in workshops. Now, let me go on record. I have nothing against old men. I love old men. I'm going to be an old man. But I've always struggled with that image of St. Joseph as this old, old man. Man. Uh, and I came across a few years ago a, um, a little excerpt from Archbishop Fulton Sheen, so you know it's good, uh, where he's talking about the depiction of Joseph as this old fella. And I want to read this and let it perhaps be a corrective to our image of him as we celebrate this feast day. So Fulton Sheen writes this. But when one searches for the reasons why Christian art should have pictured Joseph as aged, we discover that it was in order better to safeguard the virginity of Mary. Somehow the assumption had crept in that senility was a better protector of virginity than adolescence. Art thus unconsciously made Joseph a spouse chaste and pure by age rather than by virtue. Joseph was probably a young man, strong, virile, athletic, handsome, chaste, and disciplined, the kind of man one sees sometimes shepherding sheep or piloting a plane or working at a carpenter's bench. Instead of being a man incapable of loving, he must have been on fire with love. Just as we would give li very little credit to the Blessed Mother if she had taken her vow of virginity after having been an old maid for 50 years, so neither could we give much credit to a Joseph who became her spouse because he was advanced in years. Young girls in those days, like Mary, took vows to love God uniquely, and so did young men, of whom Joseph was one so preeminent as to be called the just. Instead, then, of being dried fruit to be served on the table of the king, he was rather a blossom filled with promise and power. He was not in the evening of life, but in its morning, bubbling over with energy, strength, and controlled passion. Now, that is a description of a man that deeply moves my heart. Of the scant few things we know about this man from Scripture, what we know is that he was a righteous man, satik in Hebrew, and he was a tekton in the Greek. 
it always almost almost always gets translated as carpenter, but that's not exactly the right translation. He was a tradesman, he was a craftsman. He probably did a lot of stone masonry because of the nearby town Separus, which is right next to Nazareth, was being constructed at the time, and it was it was indeed a city set on a hill. So you can imagine Jesus growing up seeing Separus being built on this hill. Anyway, this image of Joseph the carpenter isn't exactly historically terribly accurate because there just wasn't, there weren't, and there isn't a lot of trees in that part of the world uh, to create lumber. There wasn't a lot of lumber in that part of the world. There was a lot of stone. There was a lot of masonry being done. So he certainly would have apprenticed Jesus, teaching him all the skills that he possessed, how to patch roofs, how to fix wheels, how to lay foundation stones for houses, all those sorts of things. And I wonder, as I prayed through St. Joseph's life, I wonder if it ever crossed his mind while he was working with Jesus, like, how am I teaching him to build who, he who is the architect of the cosmos? Like, what are foundation stones to the one who laid the foundation of the world? What does it mean to fix a wheel for the one who came to fix the human heart? Like, what is a building, even a grand building, compared, you know, for the one who came to build the kingdom of God on earth? I wonder if those things ever crossed his mind. But nevertheless, he fathered Jesus with a father's love, and he taught him, and he labored, and he worked. Scriptures, the scriptures tell us that work is a great gift, and it was given to us even before the fall. Right? Adam was in the garden as a collaborator with God, tilling and keeping the garden before the fall. That work is not a consequence of the fall. Toil and drudgery are. Work is not. We are gifted by God to be collaborators, collaborators to labor with God, to bring creation to its fulfillment. We're part of his design for all of this. And it's part of our dignity. That's how we mirror our creator in many ways, right? God who created the world, who made the world ex nihilo, out of nothing, calls us, like I said, to collaborate with him that we mirror his creative action when we make, when we produce, when we manufacture, when we construct. We are doing what our Father did, what our Father does. It's very important that we remember that work is a gift. It's a prelapsarian, before-the-fall gift. And this is very important, too. The work we're called to, like St. Joseph, it goes beyond our professions that we might have or we might have had. It goes beyond our paychecks. Remember, like, man was, man was made for the Sabbath, as Jesus says. That we were made ultimately to enter into that seventh day rest. Intimacy, repose, communion with God that came at the end of all of the creating. That's what we're made to enter into. The opening prayer, the collect, this is what we hear. Graciously grant that by the example of St. Joseph... And under his patronage, this is the line, we may complete the works you set us to do and attain the rewards you promise. Okay, let's just be careful here. Like, we are not saying that we work our way into heaven. Like, that's a heresy, it's Pelagianism. We do not work our way into heaven. No, we have, by God's providence, though, we have work to do, right, set before us. The works you set us to do, not merely our earthly jobs, but our specific and particular role in bringing about the kingdom, right? St. 
Uh, no, it was, it's blessed Cardinal John Henry Newman. He said this, Lord, you have made me to do you some definite purpose, that there is tasks that you've appointed to me in your design of providence to bring about the kingdom. The works you have set us to do, we have work to do today for the kingdom. The work of bringing love into the world, the work of affirming the dignity of others. So friends, on this feast of St. Joseph the Worker, let us turn to him, this mighty patron, the patron of the universal church, the terror of demons, that's who Joseph is, to ask for his intercession for all of us. But especially for all fathers and grandfathers, for all godfathers, for all father figures, Let's ask for his intercession for all of us who labor, those who are seeking employment. Let us ask him to pray for, his, for us to his divine son that we would be willing to labor in our little patches of the vineyard until Jesus comes or until he calls us home.